Hello, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock flavoured podcast. After something of a break since part one, Natasha's joined me again to look at the second part of The Jewel in the Skull. And much like the last Tash show, this was recorded several weeks ago, but ended up getting overtaken by an Elric episode with Loz. This is largely thanks to a habit Tash and I have developed over the years of having a few tipples, some excellent food, and then generally losing any kind of discipline for the task that plays in front of us. And this show is no exception. Thanks to a truly enjoyable combination of rums, in this case Jamaica Cove Black Pineapple Rum, and the now ubiquitous, certainly at Tash's house, Angostura 1787, and a veritable feast of scrummy comestibles and hot sauces, you can take the gale out of Trinidad, etc. Tash's dogs are also back with us, and they make their presence known in the most doggy of ways throughout. Tail wagging, squeaky toys, some huffing, and other doggy things which I won't mention here right now. As for the subject matter, we finally meet Dorian Hawkmoon, and we get some further details regarding the dastardly Grand Britannians, but I won't go into any further detail as these podcasts are spoilery enough as they are. So, sit back, enjoy some vittles, and join us at Derry and Tom's as we take a look at the second part of Michael Moorcock's The Jewel in the Skull. So, I'm back with Natasha in Derry and Tom's roof garden, which isn't really Derry and Tom's roof garden, but once again we're in the Derry and Tom's roof garden frame of mind to cover the next part of The Jewel in the Skull. Hello, Natasha. Hello. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year! <laughs> so, what are your New Year's resolutions? <laughs> let's not even. Okay, let's not go there. Well, no. Um, I try to make minute-by-minute resolutions. Sometimes they last the minute, sometimes they pass the minute. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Life is not about a day. Mm. I've only got one New Year's resolution. Did you? Yeah. Um, I found out there's uh, a members-only anarchists club in my town um, and uh, it's my absolute intention Do you have to fill in the right amount of forms though? You have to fill in the, the form but you also have to be nominated by by a member um, and very amusingly um, one, one of the people that I communicate with on Twitter Kay said that she played there in the 80s when she was 17 in a band uh-huh. and she asked some milk for a tea and she was told that milk is murder and told off for wanting it so, so now you want to be in it. So now I want to be in it. Yeah, I think it's. I think it generally attacks a younger crowd these days, which of course I include you would, myself. You would amongst. hope so. Yeah. And um, it takes me straight into yesterday. I spent the day. I eventually articulated it fairly sloppily to a friend via WhatsApp to say I spent the day fighting inertia and inertia's winning. But surely <laughs> that is like against the laws of physics. Yeah. Which is a bit like having a members-only anarchist club. Yeah. But that could be like one of the chief laws of the multiverse, couldn't it? Inertia always wins. But filling the right amount of information to get into your anarchist club seems mm. a little bit... Is that what gets you kicked out of the anarchist club? I don't so know. if you send the, the form in with, like, I don't know, turd on it or something, they yeah. just go, yeah, you're in. Well, I'm hoping I'll just turn up and say, look, I, I, I do a Michael Mocock podcast, let me in. I could fight you all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, or I will simply fight you to, to gain access. Because I have milk in my bruise, <laughs> so I have far more. Yeah, I've got protein and calcium in my bones let me in <laughs> yeah so that's my new year's resolution and also, but also to to keep up with the podcast because we've had a, a very nice response to it and we had you, a response yeah, to it and as you know there were some people on twitter who said that they thoroughly enjoyed the episode that we did last particularly tash's salty sailor talk i think was one of the comments <laughs> yeah well 
I think maybe the, I mean they're welcome to talk to me more often but maybe yeah. they need to expand their social circle yeah cause... possibly but d- d- hold back on the salty sailor talk I think is the feedback from episode one so that's pretty good <laughs> So, so to all the others who commented on anything else, <laughs> we apologise. Because all we've taken away from it is just keep saying fuck. Yeah, very much so. And also to keep on kicking off our podcast by drinking rather excellent rum. So you'll have to remind me what rum we're drinking because I've completely forgotten. Jamaica Curve Black Pineapple Rum. And it's absolutely delicious, particularly with a drop of coconut water, which is what we're having at the moment. Yeah, bravo. More than happy with this. And Sorry. cheers. Let's, uh, yeah. Here's to 2020. Lovely. I'll just uh, take a guzzle. Mm. 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 Delicious. So, when we left it last time off, Count Brass had just... Um, the Brassy Count. The Brassy Count had uh, taken Melida's task for trying to essentially kidnap his daughter Yiselda. We've not even met Hawkmoon yet. Melidas wants Count Brass to join in the Grand Britannian War on the rest of Europe. Count Brass isn't up for it, much to the disappointment of Bargentle and Yiselda, who were very, very anti-Grand Britann. And thinking back on that, it's interesting that that whole first book, those four chapters, are bookended by the Count having a fight with a monster of some description. It starts off with him fooling and offering a way out to a monster that is a monster not by its own design, that is actually in some ways a victim of old crimes by the previous occupant of the Camargue, but he very brutally dispatches it. Then at the end, you've got a very, very human monster who Count Brass actually gives a way out and shows a level of, what's, what's the expression, noblesse oblige, is it? Where um, someone's status is recognising how they're dealt with and basically gives Melidas a pass even though he tried to kidnap his daughter and everything else and turned out to be a true, true rotter. And I think you've visually portrayed him very well, haven't you? Because I've seen the picture, finally, that you posted <laughs> online on your page. Peter so, Wingard. Yeah. So we know exactly what kind of slimy creature mm. Brass has seen off mm. with compassion. And that same kind of foolish inevitability that we need as a narrative hook <laughs> to continue through the books... I, I draw my body in straight to, if you remember, 21, 24, wasn't it? The um, Kiefer Sutherland yes. thing. Um, now, I didn't watch all of them, mm. but I am peripherally aware of... Apparently, there's an outside world yeah. away from me. I'm aware there is a Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced of the Kiefer Sutherland. However, I, you know, anyway, so, so the belief is that there was this show in which, in every season, his daughter gets kidnapped every fucking episode. Yeah. And you go... Well, at what point are you going to cut your losses, mate? Yeah. You know, either she's too stupid to live mm. or she's just too unlucky to live or whatever. She's mm. meant to die or... So there's this kind of... Why don't you just give the bad guy enough rope? Mm. Or why don't you just, like, make the victim attractive enough? So it is... It, it, it's a narrative hook because essentially it could have ended there. Yeah. Could have killed him, could have yeah. seen him off and it might have been a while before Grand Britannia yeah. turned their attention to the area thinking, Absolutely. oh, actually, they are really that impenetrable. Yeah. And as they continue to do, without giving too many spoilers in the next few books, take over the rest of the world and then come back. Oh, no, 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 yeah. we'll take it personally. Mm. Great hook. Mm. And uh, to be fair, if Count Brass had done the right thing, we wouldn't have a story, would we? So, hooray. It would, it would be a short story. with. I mean, write to, write to Andrew on Twitter and tell him what you think about 
<laughs> whether, whether people should do the common sense thing and kill the bad guy because he looks like a bad and he smells like a bad and he sounds like a bad and yeah. he's trying to steal your daughter, do you run the knife through him mm. and leave him there? Or do you carry it on for how many books have we got, Hawkmoon? Um, four in the initial sequence. Yeah. And then? And then there's the Chronicles of Castle Brass, which is three more. Right. But they're called the Chronicles of Castle Brass, but they're not really that much about Castle Brass. We'll get to that in due time. I do love to jump to the end. Yeah. Um, so, one the, the, I'm actually now really, really pleased. You see, I can barely gather my words. I'm so pleased that Melidas is still alive because the first couple of pages of the next part of the book I think are absolutely amazing and make me... There are some bits of Melidas that are absolute pure gold in the following pages, but... Book two begins in uh, with Melidas back in Londra, capital city of Grand Bretagne, brooding and plotting to bring down Count Brass and to destroy utterly the Camargue and to own Yzelda, because he's pretty much obsessed with Yzelda. And we get a really nice description of his pad. Let's have a look. In his tall tower of obsidian, overlooking the blood-red river Tame, where barges of bronze and ebony carried cargo from the coast, Baron Melidas paced his cluttered study with its tapestries of time-faded browns, blacks and blues, its auraries of precious metal and gemstones, its globes and astrolabes of beaten iron and brass and silver, its furniture of dark polished wood and its carpets of deep pile the colour of leaves in autumn. I think I've shagged him. That, you know, that's an awesome pad, really, isn't it? That is a, that is a cracking pad. Um, it's, it, in, in some ways, that might actually be my dream house. Really? Yeah, it's my, certainly my dream study. Yeah, aspirationally an evil night. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly my dream study in a tall tower of obsidian overlooking a blood-red river. Oh, God, yeah, I'd, I'd have a bit of that. So I'm warming to Melidus a little bit, because I think he's actually quite a... He's got a little bit of sartorial elegance. He's at least got taste in houses. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, it continues. Around him, on the walls, on every shelf, in every angle, were his clocks... Introduce the dogs this week. That would be Niles downstairs barking at no one. That'll be his sister joining in. This'll pass. Like all good things, we will let them live because if the evil bastards live through this episode, then everyone fucking lives through this episode. So, as we continue on. Yeah. Around him, on the walls, on every shelf, in every angle were his clocks. All were in perfect synchronization and all struck on the quarter, half, and full hour, many with musical effects. There were various shapes and sizes in cases of metal, wood, or certain other less recognisable substances. They were ornately carved to the extent sometimes that it was virtually impossible to tell the time from them. They had been collected from many parts of Europe and the Near East, the spoils of a score of conquered provinces. They were what Baron Melidus loved most among his possessions. Not only this study, but every room in the Great Tower was full of clocks. There was a huge four-faced clock in bronze, onyx, gold, silver and platinum at the very top of the tower. And when its great bells were struck by life-size figures of naked girls holding hammers, all Lundra echoed with the din. So what it's telling us is he actually lives in the Tower of Westminster. The Tower of Westminster is a massive obsidian tower with a, a, a fucking great pad at the top and bells that are struck by life-size figures of naked girls holding hammers. Okay, maybe that's a bit queasy, but all the rest of it, I'm kind of up for. Well, you haven't seen the inside, so yeah. how would you know? yeah. Well, we've seen his study, and I dig his study. I no, I mean, you haven't seen the inside of the Tower of London, so it might be oh, outside yeah. naked women. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yep. That is very true, I've never actually considered that. But soon he gets the news, he's a bit miserable, Melidas, at this point, but he soon gets the news that might perk him up a little bit. 
So, two years prior, Malidas took the province of Corn, disemboweled the Earl Duke personally and publicly, because, you know, that's just what you do. And more recently, the Earl Duke's upstart son led a rebellion and almost crushed the Grand Britannian forces there, but they were crushed by Grand Britannian reinforcements. Flame lances, ornithopters, all that good stuff. And this is our first reference now in the book to, to Dorian Hawkmoon. And I think it's straight away the heroism of our main character, Hawkmoon, is basically knocked cockeyed into an old hat. Because I've just closed my book. God damn he begins it. bound in chains at Gilded Iron as befitted his station. Stumble down the gangplank from barge to quay, blinking in the evening light and staring around him at huge menacing towers of Londra. Mm. It's not the most grand entrance. It, I mean, it, at least it's, Brass it's was brassy. And, and notably brassy. They took a moment to mention his brassiness before they mentioned, you know, how his back yeah. was up against a wall. And, and, and this... It's not so much a, a revelation when you read it for the first time, because you don't know who he is. But rereading it again for quite a while, for, you know, many, many years later, it is a revelation. Because you've read all these Hawkmoon books, and you're kind of invested in the character. Just this tiny little passage, which uh, kind of casts a slightly different light on him. The Duke of Colin had offered himself as a mercenary commander to the Dark Empire and been accepted. Had fought well in the service of Grand Britannia at Nuremberg and Ulm, winning the confidence of the Empire gaining command of a force comprised mainly of soldiers who had once served his father, then turning with them and marching back to Colne to attack the province. So actually, Hawkmoon fought for the Dark Empire, took part in battles in Nuremberg and Ulm, which means that, in all honesty, by um, association and by implication, he's done terrible, 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 terrible things. Mercenary. Yeah, mercenary. So Soldier of fortune. He may well have had that um, plan all along that he would win the trust of Grand Britannia in order to take his own place back. But in doing so, he was probably responsible for the murder of women and children and babies impaled on spikes and all those other things that, that Grand Britannia do. So, But, but the, I believe the phrase is, reportedly, I just did what I was instructed to do in the... Hmm. In the but context of our existence. It, it does fit the um, the Moorcock pattern of our hero being a semi-bastard. I do appreciate that, to be fair, because I... I apologise apologies to the listeners, because we're about to go down a, a slight side alley. Mm. What you don't understand is the amount of times this gentleman here has messaged me to say, have you read Dragonlance? <laughs> To which I say, no, I've not read Dragonlance. It's like I thought it was who you were talking to. I'm yeah, like, well, I've yeah. got a terrible memory. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I understand. <laughs> Many of our conversations become clouded in alcohol fog. Yeah. Um, and also, you probably have this conversation with everyone, but by the, ta- by the fifth or sixth time you asked me, I bought the books. Yeah. Open the first book. starts with your, t- your classical fantasy poem. Yeah. Dragons are all bad. Yeah. Oh, well... Do you know what? If this is the start of like two thousand pages, which it is, yeah. the idea that it's black and white yeah. is a little bit weak mm. for a narrative. I like to see that you know they have the good days, they have the bad days. You will have your shouting at a spaniel days. That heavy breathing is my retriever, by the way. Um, so you'll have the days which aren't as um, what's the word 
morally led, mm. shall we say. Mm. And and so to read a fantasy writer who understands that it's shades of grey, it's not a digital, but it's an mm. analogue world. So if you're if you're a mercenary, and you can apply it to modern times, again, like we were saying about the Second World War, you're a mercenary, mm. you work for whoever pays you. Mm. And if you decide, I don't really like whoever pays me, but the other side are bastards as well. I mean, even Count Brass sat on the ethical fence, didn't he? Mm. He wasn't for or against them. He just saw that order would come whoever had the Oh, yeah, and Count Brass and... did his fair share as well, exactly. didn't he? Exactly. So, so I like that about these books, and that, that also wasn't me, in that it wasn't about, um, well, this is a, the shiny good guy who came from the village, um, the classic, and again, you know all the fights, but you know, the classic, oh, he was born and he was given up as an orphan and he was raised by the town cleric and yep. he was raised as a good boy and he went off to fight, but he never forgot his good lessons. The fact that we don't start there with this is good and this is bad, the fact that we start with a sense of reality of where we all find ourselves and then the future is up to us mm. is something that I think is quite a positive and profound, particularly for the time and the size yeah. of the books yeah. that it takes on. Yeah. And back to you. Hotman's in pretty poor shape all round when, we, when we're introduced to him. I haven't... I mean, I don't want to ruin it, but uh. we'll see if he gets any better, yeah. shall we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Melidus is, is anxious that uh, Hotman has set an example to other people in Europe, um, but then he realises that uh, an opportunity perhaps is dawning. So he ensures that on Hartman's arrival at the Londra's prison catacombs that he's the first one to get into his ribs... So, Hartman's in pretty poor shape when he arrives. A guard in white leather and wearing the white metal death's head mask that was uniformed to the order he served pushed him gently forward. Hartman staggered in spite of the lightness of the pressure, for he had not eaten for almost a week. His brain was at once clouded and abstracted. He was hardly aware of the significance of his circumstances. Since his capture at the Battle of Colne, no one had spoken to him. He had lain most of the time in the darkness of the ship's bilges, drinking occasionally from the trough of dirty water that had been fixed beside him. He was unshaven, his eyes were glazed, his long fair hair was matted, and his torn mail and breeches were covered in filth. The chains had chafed his skin so that red sores were prominent on his neck and wrists, but he felt no pain. Instead, he felt little of anything, moved like a sleepwalker, so everything as if in a dream. So he's, he's in a bit of a terrible state, he's mentally beaten, um, he's, he's pretty much shagged, isn't he? So on to chapter two, The Bargain. So Hawkman wakes up to see a wolf mask. Melidus wants him in better shape. So he gets bathed, shaved, fed, quartered in luxury, given books, drugs, slave girls, none of which he's into because he's completely flat and uninterested in anything. Um, but their essential plan is to give him loads of drug milk, get him fed, clean him up, get him to the barbers, so Melidus can uh, get him to the point where he can start to plot his revenge for not being able to make away from the Camargue with Yzelda. And amusingly, he gets a little bit miffed. And this is another one of the things that entertained me about Melidus. Because Melidus is trying his very, very best to goad Hawkmoon. And he did disembowel his father, after all. But he just his, all his attempts fall flat because Hawkmoon's just like, Ugh, whatever, I just want to go home. So there's some really quality Melidus. Where, where are we? Shocked by a display of what he mistook for sentimentality, Baron Melidus snapped. What you do when you return, whether you make daisy chains or build castles, is of no interest to us. You will return, however, only if you perform your mission faithfully. Hartman's introverted eyes glanced up at Melidus. You think I have lost my reason, perhaps, my lord? I'm not sure. We have means of discovering that. Our sorcerer scientists will make certain tests. I am sane, Baron Melidus. Saner, perhaps, than I ever was. You have nothing to fear from me. 
Barmelidus raised his eyes to the ceiling. By the rune staff, will no one take sides? He opened the door. We will find out about you, Duke von Koln. You'll be sent for later today. And then he just pisses off, really cheesed off, that you can't get a rise out of Hawkmoon. I love that. You can just you can just imagine Jason King, Scrap Peter Wingard, putting his hands on his hips and looking to the ceiling going, Oh, what? Oh, for heaven's sake, will anybody take sides? So he's already had Count Brass buff, rebuff him. Now Hawkmoon's just like, Meh, I don't want to do anything, I'm not interested. It's really interesting, though, because he, start, he starts quite pathetic. Yeah. And again, without ruining the end of the book, he stays kind of fucking pathetic. <laughs> like, he, doesn't, he doesn't step into his dickheadness. He just yeah. kind of is like, I'm a pitiful wretch of manipulation. Yeah. Dreamy. Yeah. There is another character comes in later on, um, who, you know, won't name him yet, but it does make things a little bit more interesting and has a little bit more pizzazz about him, who becomes one of his companions. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm looking forward to this discussion because yeah. I don't know if we're going to see that the same. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, 20 years ago, I thought it was cool. I'm not sure. We'll just have to check it out. We'll have to, we'll have to go on that journey together. But I think, again, the beauty of the shortness of the books is you bring a lot to your own table. Yeah. Because actually, when you read through it, it's not described in that detail. It's yeah. what you want to project onto it and take away with yeah. you. Because actually, when I read it, I'm like, I remember there being more formative relationship building things yeah. are like do you want to be my friend alright yeah. let's go that's very much a, uh, a Mocock thing isn't it yes um, but what well, I mentioned his name William de Verk or de Ver, or whatever his name is my memories of him is that is, is, is he a fake Frenchman I can't rem- I can't quite remember but I'm, I'm I'm really really hoping that the dashing de Ver kind of manages to maintain some level of I have a dog sniffing my nuts leave my nuts alone Everything's fine. And for the outside viewers, that's why you just hear me go, shh. Yeah. Not, you know, just go there. Shh. Just go there. Sniff his nuts. Go, go. Come here. I haven't actually taught them the sniff your nuts. Okay, so later, Hawkman's taken to the palace of the King Emperor of Grand Bretagne. Okay, well, here we go. It's pronunciation time. Huan, 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 Huan. What, what would you go with? Juan. Juan. Okay, we'll go with Juan. And uh, we get a little taste of kind of what Grand Bretagne is like. The palace rose tier upon tier, almost out of sight. Four great towers surmounted it, and these towers glowed with a deep golden light. The palace was decorated with bas reliefs depicting strange rites, battle scenes, famous episodes in Grand Bretagne's long history, gargoyles, figurines, abstract shapes, the whole a grotesque and fantastic structure that had been built over centuries. Every kind of building material had been used in its construction and then coloured so that the building shone with a mixture of shades covering the entire spectrum. And there was no order to the placing of colour, no attempts to match or contrast. One colour flowed into the next, straining the eye, offending the brain. The palace of a madman, overshadowing in its impression of insanity, the rest of the city. Uh, yeah, pretty gauche, frankly. Or how I see London. Yeah, ooh, well, yeah. Unfiltered. Yeah, yeah. When you consider since his days we've had the gherkin and all sorts of other hideous erections in London. Yeah. Take it as you will. Yeah. But of course on this occasion he's not there to see King Juan. He'll see King Juan later. He's there to be taken to a vast hall of weird machines where he meets Baron Kalan of Vital. Hmm. Vital, okay. Chief scientist of the King Emperor. And he's dined and given booze. He's dined in silence with um, Baron Kalan. But there's uh, a bit that made me chuckle, where after he's been dined, he's given wine. 
I says. Hartman tasted the wine. It was excellent. My own invention, the wine, said Kalen, and smirked. It is unfamiliar, Hartmoon admitted. What grape? No grape, but grain, a somewhat different process. It is strong. Stronger than most wines, agreed the Baron. Is that fucking barley wine? Has Baron Kalen invented barley wine? Oh, is it one of those Belgian beers at like 21%? Uh, it could be, but that, that, that seems a little bit too swish, I think. <laughs> I reckon Baron Kalen has invented barley wine and he's we putting, can have magic he's putting and gold we can have foil around the top but of his bottle. We can't bottles. have a decently strong <laughs> ale. God forbid. No. Belgium? No. How far away is that? No. No, nope, not in England. Not no. London. Never. I reckon Never. Baron Kalen has invented. What was Sa- that? What? Says pro Brexit, Andrew. Yeah. Well, good lord. What have those aspersions <laughs> cast? Um, I, I think he's, he's totally invented barley wine and it's going to be wrapped in gold foil and everything in tiny bottles. Well, Just like obviously, I 21st it. century um, culinary skills require a certain amount of gold leafing to every shite you have. Yeah. What was the brand of barley wine in pubs when we were youngsters? Where you always had the old geezer at the end of the bar who sat and drank their small bottles of barley wine with the gold foil around the top. If anybody can remember, tweet me and, and remind me what that was called. Because I once tried it and it's fucking horrible. It's one of the worst drinks I've ever I've had. I've tasted that. I've also blocked out the name. Yeah. I know the one. Yeah. I know the one. Probably the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. You've repressed the trauma. Mm. But now I went away from any bottle that's got a slight glow trim around the Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of repressed trauma, Hartman finds out that he's there to have his sanity evaluated by Baron Kalen with the help of the mentality machine, which is kind of a, a wonderful invention. And, of course, we, we both have to some one degree or another, backgrounds in working in mental health. And I think the idea of a giant mentality, mentality machine that's basically a, a fleshy bell that you plug someone into, I don't know, I think that could fly. I was going to say, has that already happened? <laughs> when I had those... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I hope not. But I hope we get the opportunity to invent it and patent it. I don't know, maybe not. It does sound a bit weird. Um, but will it sell, Andrew? Will it sell? Well... It's not like I thought it was have particularly ethical jobs. We're both looking at Horton going, you lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get the choice of bastards to work for. We'll just take the money. <laughs> well, well since, he's, since he's got to Grand Bretagne, I mean, obviously he is traumatised and everything else, but he's, he's, he's had quite an easy ride of it so far. I think the mentality machine, he doesn't really seem that overly bothered about that. Kaelin asked him to get in it, so... He says, as the, at last the bell completely covered him and its fleshy sides moved in to mould themselves around his body. It was an obscene embrace and would have horrified the Dorian Hawkmoon had fought the Battle of Kong, but this new Hawkmoon felt only a vague impatience and discomfort. He began to feel a crawling sensation in his skull, as if incredibly fine wires were entering his head and probing at his brain. Hallucinations began to manifest themselves. Okay, yeah, so at that point it maybe doesn't sound like that practical an answer to mental about, health services. Again, these were written post World War Two, yeah. like your nineteen sixties US military LSD drug experiments on their whatever, whoever they could catch and offer it to yeah. in a sugar cube. Uh-huh. So it's not it's mm, not wildly mm, sugar cube. Yeah, so it's not wildly like separate. This is the thing about his um, his writing is that it's almost it's like our world but a bit sexier. Yeah. Which is a tragic really because yeah, yeah. it isn't it isn't really a positive world. However, yeah. there's there's so many comparisons to what yeah. we consider normal. Yeah. Our world, bit sexier, bit weirder, 
bit more. Well, I don't know. Is is it a bit more depraved than ours? No, well, it just brings o- it to the it's surface. Openly doesn't it? depraved. It's openly That's depraved. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you've got those crazy flamingos. We've got Farage. Mm. You've got, you know, you hang them from the street. We've got, you go down to a cell and you pay if you've got a lot of money and mm. you'll never be fucking caught. Yeah. So we don't live in a particularly different world. It's just yeah. ours is, it's really well cast, as mm-hmm. in the Indian terms of cast, as in if you can fucking afford it, yeah. have what you want, get yeah. away with it, continue for your lifetime. Yeah. If anything, this is almost, you know, the arguments that say we've had multiple cycles of civilization. This is almost like 20 cycles on from that, mm. where we've now, the powers that be have managed to mask it to the point that the ordinary people go on pretending there isn't tra- child rape going on within yeah. a 25 mile radius of you that will never be persecuted. And mm-hmm. we know, because we've had the evidence yeah. for hundreds of years, but we'll still just carry on. Mm. Whereas if you hang them to the actual lamppost, which is, you know, that old... What's the word I'm looking for? Apologies for having to cut this out. But mm. the old approach to what we should do with politicians is let's hang from the lamppost. I'm like, well, great, but we tried that. But actually, we won't find the people to hang from the lampposts because either they'll cover their arse mm. or they'll have a volunteer, you know, victim in front of them or something will happen. That means that they get to carry on. Yeah. So I would, I would almost say to the Twitter folk out there who want to talk to Andrew, because I've removed myself from Twitter, no offence personally to you, um... If you can think of a way that you can evidence, from a philosophical debate, how we can prove that we do not live three or four centuries on from Hawkmoon, and it's actually a historical book Mm. talking about our past, because I don't... Because he did so well in replicating within a fantasy world the shit we were dealing with within our real world. Yeah. And I don't think consciously we've healed that. Given given our current political situation on any side of any Atlantic or Pacific or Indian Ocean or wherever you are in the world, you'll be looking out going, yeah, but did we get over that? Mm. At what point did we win? Because that's still happening, that still happens, that mm. still happens, but we pretend it's all all right. So if anything, he was a, uh, he was a revolutionary, which at the time he was a... An anarchist. Mm-hmm. He was an anarchist, so he did want to raise these things to consciousness to get people discussing mm-hmm. them, and he's had to wait however many years for me to have this conversation. Mm. This is it one of the reasons great. I loved Murcock so much when I was thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, because you knew it. You and Hall, me and Stoke, we knew there was shit going on. Well, well, well the interesting thing is, while I was reading this, other things that I was getting off my granddad were things like Wheels of Terror by Sven Hassel, where the first chapter details the characters trying to dig buried children out during a fire a firebomb raid by the RAF, trying to dig children out of cellars. And it, that was completely horrifying. So that's, on the one hand, I'm reading fantasy, which has open depravity and terribleness. And, and on the other hand, I'm reading something that at the time was written 20 years before about events 30 years before that was fucking horrible as well. And it's, so, so you've got that thing... You it's know. almost the openness that's the difference, isn't yeah. it? Because what we don't have is the openness. Yeah. And in the last few months in British politics, I've said to a lot of friends, actually, because we were just said about our mental health background, it's yeah. like, actually, we know that things don't heal while they're still in shadow. Mm. So if you don't realise it's there, you don't recover from it. Yeah. So you have to bring it to the surface. Where with Moorcock, he was like, here it is on the surface, what do we need to heal? Mm. Whereas with us, we've got, you know, 
one clown, one side of a river, and another clown, another side of a river. Yeah. That's metaphorical, guys. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's that matching of we need to understand how we have got here yeah. before we can recover from it. Yeah. Whereas he's like, well, what happened was there, there was there was a good time, then there was a bad time, then there was this long time of bad times, and mm. we've got these people, and they came from eons of this, and blah, blah. And we don't have that narrative. Mm. If anything, in our popular narrative, we only go back one or two walls. Yeah. We don't even really consider how we got into those wars. Yeah. We don't really understand who won. Yeah. And I use won in inverted commas. Even Ma was so upset with that, she started wagging into the... Yeah. Yeah. So it's how much can we take out of anything? If you look at something long enough, how much can you infer behind it mm. as a sense of a, a time and a place and a politics and a thinking and a... It's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, so I think maybe we can agree the mentality machine will probably wouldn't try and invent it and patent it because it's a bit weird and sick. I would say we've already got several. Ah, yeah, we've but, got. Have you seen the list? You've seen the list as a with your background of mm. questions you can ask people to show if they're normal or not. Oh yeah, have you ever been in a fleshy bell and had wires put in your brain? Yeah, <laughs> that's number five. I'll add that. <laughs> that's number five. I'll, I'll add that to the uh, to the risk assessment. Um, but the good news from the mentality bell, mentality machine, I should say, is that Baron Kalen says that the preliminary. Investigation says he's sane. Right. Now, the bad news is he's got to go in again the next day. So he goes in it the next day. And That's supreme confidence in technology, <laughs> yeah. that is. And Baron Kalen wants to. Is that a private again. sector healthcare service? Hold on, let me turn the page. <laughs> this, this could be the very start of something amazing where we make a lot of money by doing really, really unethical things. By Booper. <laughs> so, Baron Kalen says it seems that you are, in some peculiar way, too sane, my Lord Duke. A paradox, eh? Aye, too sane. As if some, some part of your brain has disappeared altogether or has been cut off from the rest. However, I can only report to Baron Melidus that you seem eminently suited to his purpose, so long as sensible precautions are taken. So, they're happy that he's too sane. Probably describe, I don't, I don't know, what is it? Is it um, disassociative, disassociative disorder? Pro- poss- we'll have to ask friend of the show, Sacco, so, who's actually a psychiatrist. Got psychiatrists. Uh, no, you see, so psychiatrists and psychotherapists are kind of in the same camp of, you know, well, psychiatrists want to drug them. Yeah. Psychotherapists want to torture them. Mm. Psychologists are the ones who'll give you your um, categorization. Ah. Yeah. I'm glad we stopped there because we could have gone down a, a, a really, really rapid route of upsetting all of the professions. Yeah, so psychiatrists, come to me if you want to drug me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you. But if someone wants to like tell us what's wrong with us, we need a separate type of sign. You need a mentality machine. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, Melidus is satisfied and hatches his plan. <laughs> He's going to send Hawkmoon to the Camarg to seek sanctuary in the confidence of Camp Brass and then have him kidnap Yazelda, obviously, in return for getting his lands back. And Hawkmoon's all, oh, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, I'll do, do it. Yeah, all right. All right. Uh, once again... Melidus is kind of discomfort, discomforted by uh, by Hartman's passivity and gets gets irritable again. He's like, you know, God, you could at least you could at least argue back. Didn't expect to say all right. It sounds like the um, Andrew Lloyd Webber Jesus Christ superstar, though, isn't it? It's yeah. that Pontius Pilate scene. To be fair, Andrew Lloyd Webber probably stole it from here. Going, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, what's hack. wrong with you? Can you not be upset? It's like bloody hack. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus. Mm. So, so that's where the Christianity. Um, learned from Walcott. Yeah. Moving on. 
So <laughs> before I get the death threat. Yeah, yeah, it's the kicker of the black jewel. So the black jewel is going to, in some way, ensure Hartman's um, commitment to the plan despite his passivity. So chapter three, the black jewel, and Hartman's soon back at Kalen's labs and is introduced to the machine of the black jewel, a product of weird and obscure sorcery, not of Grand Britannian origin. I love this. Kalen bought a grimoire off some dude and built it himself. Your best he bought. <laughs> He, he downloaded kit. it from that thing that says, I, I drop low people up. Yeah. He downloaded that thing and then he got some bleach in and what he did was he yeah. made his home version. Yeah, he, he, he bought a grimoire from a dodgy bloke and built this machine himself. It's kind of like, a, like those people... Here, mate. Like those people on Tinterweb who buy, um, buy instructions to build uh, weather machines and things like that, which uh, I seem to recall was a thing about you 10, 15 my years ago. Machine, you? The early days of the internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am. I'm dissing it because, you know, where's the sun? The weather machines create only create clouds. or can they get rid of them? I'm not an Imagine expert. It depends on the weather machine. Doesn't it? Yeah. So, so for the, so the second day running, Kaelin is asking. Well, the third day running, Kaelin is asking Hartman to enter a weird machine. There was pressure from within his skull, and he felt a sense of absolute warmth and softness suffuse his body. He drifted as if bodiless and lost the sense of passing time but he knew the machine was spinning something from his own substance, making something that became hard and dense and implanted itself in his forehead so that suddenly he seemed to possess a third eye and stared out at the world with a new kind of vision. Then gradually this faded and he was looking at Baron Kalen, who had removed his mask the better to regard him. That actually sounds quite cool. I don't think that sounds too terrible. Um, that's, that's definitely... You, you know Mocock was taking some hefty doses of whatever he could get his hands on. Because, experimentally because, at the time. Yeah, because he describes yeah. a, a, a quite groovy trip quite easily there. So, all of a sudden, Hartman now has got this bloody black jewel in his brain. Well, at the front of his head, anyway. Um, and so Kalen shows Hartman that he's now basically got a funky mystical camera in his head and they can see everything now that he does. Although we'll find out later on, they can't hear what he does. Which I think, okay, all this super sorcery technology magic is pretty groovy but it only shows visuals so yeah. it's emergent technology that they've dug up from somewhere yeah well he, he bought it from a dodgy bloke at a bazaar um, mm. you know so Google Roswell technology home mm. build yeah see what you come up with start testing on people today and the future might be yours and if we don't capture audio it's shit you've been had <laughs> you've yeah. been had but we can, we can merge it with something else yeah so next up, Melidas escorts Hartman to an audience with King Emperor Huan. So we finally get to meet King Emperor Huan. And we find out Huan is basically a wizened old fetus in a big milky globe. The boy in the bubble. That, yeah, that speaks with like a young child's voice um, and controls his gear inside the globe with a prehensile tongue. But is Pretty that, gross. But is that the guy that Paul Simon was singing about in The Boy in the Bubble? I don't know. I don't know the song. You'd have to tell me. I would have to tell you. Yeah. Well, Google it. Boy oh. in the Bubble. Yeah, Paul don't Simon, tell me. Just tell Google me. it. Tell, tell me if they came in in the 60s, 70s and went, we're too off our heads and acid to think of another idea, but this one sounds good. Yeah. The boy in the bowl. Yeah. I think it probably is the... Because um, uh, it's imagery. Yeah. And imagery is really powerful. The same with symbolism, yeah. is it carries through. So Moorcock's the one that we've read. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there wasn't one 100 years and 100 years before and 100 yeah, yeah. years before. And actually, the 3,000 years before, when this actually happened... Huh. And it was recorded and passed down in a narrative and a 
So I'm just trying to weird out your listeners now. No, that's cool. I'm just um, trying to convince them all that it's real. Yeah. It's so real. Yeah. I think it is also probably the influence for um, the Emperor in Warhammer 40,000. Yeah. Uh, which is like, you know, ancient... Um, or the emperor, three thousand year old, whatever, kept from, alive by If you ever had a mother-in-law, you'll find they look the fucking same. So I know where that <laughs> theme came from. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to go down that road. Put a cow on the bitch. Put a cow on the bitch. Not going to go down it. there. Phil, you see it. To this. You see it. For the audience, for the look on his face says he sees this. He sees it. I see nothing. He sees nothing. I see nothing. Phil, he sees nothing. The look on his face says he sees it. You edit what you want, my friend. You edit what you yeah. want. He does so. He's, he's, he's a bit weird. He's a bit gross. He's probably influenced all sorts of other things, and possibly been influenced by other things as well. It's, it's the grey thing. It's got a big yeah. head and slitty eyes, and yeah. a little bit kind of weird skin. He looks old and he looks wise. Yeah. And, yeah. and anyway, he, he does have a word with uh, with Hartman, and we get another look, just little nugget of gold, Melidas gold. So Juan says, you <laughs> and you have made it clear to him that he should show any. But should he show any signs of betraying us, any slight sign which we may easily detect by watching through his eyes the faces of those he speaks to, we shall give the jewel its full life. We shall release all the energy of the machine into its sibling. Have you told him, Baron Melidus, that the jewel, possessed of its full life, will then eat its way through his brain, devour his mind and turn him into a drooling, mindless creature? In essence, great emperor, he has been so informed. I glossed over it, yeah. but he kind of knows. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. The thing in the throne globe chuckled. By the look of him, Baron, the threat of mindlessness is no threat at all. Are you sure he's not already possessed of the jewel's full life? <laughs> it, is, it is his character to seem thus, immortal ruler. <laughs> and every, every time you get one of these little malidus cracks, I just yeah. I start to like him more and more, despite the fact the he's look obviously on his face. Come on. super evil. He's a dotard. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. I absolutely love that. But this exchange is the first thing that starts to light the spark of Hawkman's returning personality because he has a slight sense of irritation. <laughs> it's brilliant. The only thing that woke me up from my near-death experience is being pissed off with you, dude. Yeah. It's like, fucking hell, these two are irritating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. spark of humanity. I know the feeling. If, if you've never been on the hormone pill, you don't know the feeling of waking up to annoyance. What the fuck? But you, Sonny Breathing's pissing me off. Yeah. Right. To the women out there who are listening to this podcast, that was for you. Do, do you reckon that they'll go the whole hog with a TV show? And oh. what what do you think? Because there's, there's so much fantastic imagery. The first Don't part with, with the Camargue, Don't the Count Brass, was all really, really cool. But all this Grand Bretagne stuff is so fucking wacky and psychedelic. Is it not all, number one, going to be filmed in Iceland? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Because it's recognisable too, and she does the air uh, things in the air. Yeah. Bunny ears. Fantasy. She's doing bunny ears. Bunny ears. Yeah. She's, so it's recognisable to the fantasy followers. Yeah. Oh look, craggy rock outing. Mm. So the fall in Iceland. Yeah. They will CGI the flamingos in. Mm. Um, Meliodas will be. Tom Cruise, I think we discussed it. They're all going to be Tom Cruise. No, hold on. So Melidus will be the guy who plays the bat Loki in Marvel because that's what the modern mind thinks of as. He'll have a British accent, obviously. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. 
Um, Hawk Moon will be. Do you know what he'll be? Do you know what? It's only literally just crossed my mind. Yeah. Die Hard One. Hawk Moon, German. He's going to take uh, Nakato Towers. Oh, yeah. He's going to release his mate. Yeah. But you know that. So this is how far back we go. We're like, you know what? The bad guy's going to be German. No, he fucking isn't. Yeah, he is. In this one, the bad guy's going to be German. He's going to look British. And he's going to kind of sound British. Yeah. But he's going to be German. Mm. So I'm seeing Alan Rickman. Mm. Yeah. So Alan Rickman. Yeah. Would be the sexy version. Look, if Alan Rickman turned up and wanted to take away my innocent daughter, I'd be like, come on, you're Alan Rickman. Yeah. You're not that dirty guy that Andrew sent me on the internet. You're like a. I would give. Even if I thought you were slightly dodgy, you could have my daughter. 1970s Melidus, definitely Peter Wingard, Jason King. 1980s Melidus, yeah, Alan Rickman with his tash from Die Hard. And the accent. Yeah, 90s. Melidus, 2000s, Melidus, 2000s. Let's not get... And we're 2020s now. 2020s now. Nothing's moved for the last 20 years. We haven't been allowed. But who who are those people out there? They would have to go on a massive fucking casting And the guy guy who played Loki in in Marvel, he's British. Is it Tom somebody? Hiddleston? Tom Hiddleston, Hiddleston. but he's he's too famous. He's doing his Disney Plus stuff. No, 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 no. I don't mean about, like, what we know to be true. I mean about what we've been sold to be true, which Uh. is a slightly different thing. So, him... I know, I know female friends who think he's hunky. Personally, I'd give him a pie, and that's not because I want to keep him, that's just because I want to feed him, because yeah. he looks like he needs a meal, and that's all right. If you could walk my dogs, mm. you could so stay. Yeah. That's a different I think po- that's reasonable. That's a different podcast. So that ch- tune into but Andrew. more than reasonable. But more than reasonable, mm. yeah. Um, and so modern guys, I mean, Eccleston could play either side. Mm. But there's not many people. Obviously, Tom Cruise could play everybody in the show, but everybody yeah. else would be... I think this is a distinct known. problem that, that... Maybe not we've got, that I've certainly got, is that when I think of all the actors that I want to play these parts, they were all ten years older than me when I was into them, and now they're all 60-plus. So, so have to I don't know who it, all we? these people are now. I think we'd have to have a massive casting I only know Hiddleston because I've got friends who like him. Yeah, we'd have like, to have a massive casting campaign to find the 2020s version of Jason King. That's what we need. We need okay. the all-new Peter Wingard. Hashtag all-new Peter Wingard. Yeah, that's what we need. Right, let's get back on track. <laughs> so, chapter four, he's on his way to Castle Brass. So, Melidus kicks Hawkmoon out with gear and his cover story, which is something along the lines of, you drugged me, you escaped with a set of my armour, now you're escaping and seeking sanctuary. Meh, 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 yeah. And, and when you do that, you'll kidnap your Zelda and bring her back to me. And Hawkman's all right. Well, smallest violin, yeah. dickhead. So he's, he's, flown to Orn- he's flown by Ornithops to Dover. And what, what we really get is a four or five page travelogue now, which we won't go into any detail. But it is rather lovely. There's some really, really great descriptions of the Silver Bridge and, and all that business. There's, there's, there's you started one. it with four or five page, not 40 or 50 page. Yeah. Now, and then we stopped here for lunch and then we met these people and they yeah. gave us a rabbit and the rabbit was delicious. It was the most delicious rabbit of the world. Yeah. It made us feel all buoyant on the inside, but then the next rabbit made us feel sad. Four, four oh. or five page, happy with it. Yeah, rabbit Move is on. good. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. into rabbit. Let's eat the rabbit. But this, this, this is all pure flavour. And there's, there's a nice paragraph here that I really dug, which was um, when they get to Dover and it says, at last they emerged through a guarded door into a paved street between the square, turreted buildings that filled the city. The streets were crowded with the warriors of Grand Bretagne, 
groups of crow mask flies rubbed shoulders with the fish and sea serpent mask crews of the men of war. The infantry and the cavalry in a great variety of masks, some of the order of the pig, others of the orders of wolf, skull, mantis, bull, hound, goat, and many more. Swords slapped armoured legs, flame lances clashed in the press, and everywhere was the gloomy jingle of military gear. Nice bit of flavour about what, what Dover is like. Basically, it's a military port, which is just non-stop activity. And you get a similar description of the Silver Bridge with um, the 30-mile bridge that spans the English Channel, which is kind of groovy. And it's basically uh, just a, a, a constant press of war machines, booty returning from Europe. It's, it's all really, really good stuff. Right, we just had a, a very quick break there and topped up on some, um, well, it was ham with piccalilli and what was that, hot pepper sauce? Moringa. Moringa. Moringa hot pepper sauce, which was absolutely bloody fantastic. Um, and now we're on Angostura 1787 rum, which is, uh, well, all I can say is it's bloody splendid. So let's let's continue. This is what Grand Bretagne were bothered about. What's the word? Globalising the world for the like. Hold on, this is delicious. Yeah. What could we possibly do, policy-wise? Because let's face it, we both work those roles yeah. to make this spread across the world so everybody understands how delicious life can be. And um, just tell everybody it's rubbish and only drink barley wine. Barley wine across the board. Best it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Me and you now own <laughs> Carlsberg <laughs> yeah. and moving swiftly on. Yeah. So during his uh, journey to the Crystal City of Parai. Um, Hartman's not particularly careful with his disguise at an inn and, but overnight he sees something of significance out of his window and it says during the night he was disturbed without realising what had awakened him for some reason he felt drawn to the window and looked out in the moonlight he thought he saw a figure on a heavy war horse looking up at his window the figure was that of a warrior in full armour his visor covering his face Hartman believed he caught a flash of jet and gold then the warrior had turned his horse and disappeared ah the warrior in jet and gold um, pops up quite a lot. Significant key character, mysterious character. That's our first mention of him. So Parai is physically in good nick, but it's an occupied city. And <clears throat> the text states, within the city the marks of occupation were everywhere, from the look of permanent fear on the faces of the common folk to the beast-masked warriors who swaggered the streets. The flags that flowed in the wind over the houses were once owned by Parai's noblemen. Now the flags were those of Jarek Nankinseen, Warlord of the Order of the Fly, Erdas Promp, Grand Constable of the Order of the Hound, Migel Holst, Archduke of Londra, and Azravak Mikozavar, Renegade of Muscovia, Mercenary Warlord of the Vulture Region, Pervert and Destroyer, whose legion had served Grand Bretagne even before our plan of European conquest became evident. Ooh, I'm quite pleased I managed to get his name right first time. But Azravak Mikozavar is, uh, is a proper villain. So moving on from Parai and travelling further south, Hawkman sees the res- results of Mikozavar and Co. and eventually passes to lands not yet conquered, where he's recognised by an old soldier of Kong and fated as a hero, but he sticks to his plan and his cover story. Soon he sees the lagoons and marshes of the Camargue and the heliograph flashing the old towers, telling Castle Brass of his approach. Finally, he has arrived at Castle Brass. 
where Count Brass entertains him, listens to his tale, and Yzelda and Bargentle are there, hoping he'll entreat the Count to take up arms, but Hawkmoon's done by it. He's like, oh, no, I just want some sanctuary. Help me, sir. Yeah. Dating him. Yzelda looked almost disappointed. It was plain that all in the room save wise Count Brass wanted war with Grand Bretagne. For different reasons, perhaps. Yzelda, to revenge herself against Malidas. Bargentle, because he believed such evil must be countered and Von Villac simply because he wished to exercise his sword again. But Count Brass, he's satisfied. He offers Hawkmoon um, essentially unlimited sanctuary, can stay as long as he likes. And that night, Hawkmoon thinks he sees the warrior in Jet and Gold again, and thinks, oh, who is this dude? I'll see him again. But then his thoughts turn back to accomplishing the kidnap. So at this point, he's still thinking, oh, I've just got to get this out of the way. Get this out of the way and get the kidnapping done. But... Bogentle's on his case already, so Bogentle quizzes him because he's intrigued by his flat, emotionless manner. Yzelda, on the other hand, well, as we discussed in the last episode, a dude's turned up in Swiss armour, so Yzelda's all like, well, you know, I'm, I'm compassionate, I feel sorry for this guy. So she takes Hartman walking in the gardens, feeling warmth and affection for this flat, sad dude with a black jewel in his forehead. So she encourages, whilst walking, arm in arm through the gardens, she encourages him to reminisce about Colm and his homelands. And Hawkmoon, Captain Buzzkill, <laughs> responds thus. He sighed, an increasing trace of emotion entering his turn. The mark of the sword and the torch replacing the mark of the plough and the harrow. He turned to look at her. And the cross and gibbet were made from the timber of the yellow fences. And the carcasses of the cows and sheep clogged the watercourses and poisoned the land. And the stones of the farmhouses became ammunition for the catapults. And the people became corpses or soldiers. There was no other choice. And she actually takes that quite well. Rather than thinking, fucking hell, dude. You know, I didn't really mean to find out. You know, it's like when you say, are you all right? Please don't tell me all no, of that. No, 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 I just meant, like, are you hungry or are you thirsty? <laughs> I don't want to know, like, the full yeah. history. Just I just wanted to hear what the haberdasheries were like. What's the precy? Yeah. So Count Brass turns up again and says, you know, you can stay as long as you like, but this evening there will be entertainment, including Burgentle reading his latest works. And even Hawkmoon can't really get up for that. But that night, a banquet is attended by the great and good of the Camargue, and Burgentle at Brass's edge and reads poetry. For what then becomes five pages of the book is basically Bargentle's poetry. It all gets a bit Lord of the Rings at this point, but of course there is a method anywhere behind Bargentle reading poetry for five pages um, because Hawkmoon gets ill and keels over as Bargentle basically relentlessly rhymes at him, <laughs> getting all up in his face, giving some downright action rhyming. So anyway, it turns out Brass had his number all along and he instructed Bargentle to construct a rune in rhyme because Count Brass recognises weird science when he sees it and he's read about the Black Jewel in something or other in his library so they're exploiting the fact that the Black Jewel doesn't record audio <laughs> because it's it's a prototype Black Jewel when so, was this book written? Was it, were we, 68, 67? 67, 68. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the idea of having, genuinely, the idea of having technology that could do both, yeah. and that, a bit like when I first read the um, 
1984, it's like, why would anybody put a TV on the wall that just like took all the video and talked to them? Like, that's got to be stupid. <laughs> and now we've got to the point where everyone's like, why don't I have a TV on the wall that just takes all the video and speaks to me? Yeah. Moving on. So Count Brass has um, Bow Gentle caper about in front of Hartmoon as if they're having some kind of conversation, then either stands behind him or stands in another room and tells him exactly what's going on and that they've, they've got his number. So they lead him down to another area, and then Count Brass essentially shoots him in the head with a weird, with, with a weird science gun, and takes the life force out of the duel, and gives Hartmoon a temporary reprieve, which will not last. Bear in mind, Hartmoon started mental, mm. so we didn't start like you know, as sane as me and Andrew. No, yeah. no, no, no. He started more crazy. So Hawkmoon says, so I'm reprieved but not saved. How, oh. how long does the reprieve last? And Count Brass says, I'm not sure. Six months, almost certainly. Perhaps a year. Perhaps two. But then again, it could be a matter of hours. I cannot deceive you, Dorian Hawkmoon, but I can give you extra hope. There is a sorcerer in the East who could remove the Black Jewel from your head. He is opposed to the Dark Empire. Might help you if you could ever find him. Malagigi of Hamadan. Hashtag conveniently. Yeah. And thus begins the fairly common Mocock trope of filling, in, of filling in all of the middle books in a sequence with yeah. MacGuffin-based quests <laughs> in D- order to achieve Dot something. .tm plot device. Yeah, so we have our MacGuffin shape quest lined up where no doubt it will bump into someone and go, hey, let's be companions and, and, and travel together. I'm uh, sure it's not just Moorcroft, because yeah. that's like every part of fantasy. Oh, it goes all the way back to Robert E. Howard. Um, we discussed it when... Um, People who should be killed in long and slow quests. Yeah, we discussed it in the last episode, when we covered Tower of the Elephant with Phil, <laughs> um, the Conan story. It's essentially a case where two people bump into each other, and they go, hey, we're both kind of heading in the same direction. Let's should adventure to together. Yeah. Let's, let's adventure together. And, and it's, that's basically... Why I think when if I ever play a fantasy role playing game or anything like that, and people are really heavy into backstory, and you're being asked by the games master um, about your connections with A, B, and C, and, and asked to come up with an elaborate backstory, I'm not interested in any of that shit. We're adventurers. Oh look, here's another adventure. Let's adventure. I believe we need to go there now. Exactly. Exactly. I mean exactly. That Angostura rum is starting to interfere with my mouth. Um. So, Count Brass smiled wryly. I give you back your life and immediately you decide to sacrifice it because Hartman's just said, oh, well, yeah, okay, this guy might be in Persia. <laughs> so, well, what I'll do instead is I'll just go back to where I was last a couple of days ago, team up with all the old soldiers and get killed fighting well, Grand Bretagne. But at least I might take some of them down with me. And we know that won't happen because the quest, because quest I, available. I do wonder... Did Moorcock and, in fact, all the other fantasy writers ever work in the public sector? Because it's almost like they've nailed yeah. any programme team yeah. who've tried to deliver <laughs> any kind of change in the last 30 years. I'm yeah, like, it's absolutely true. Should we turn up? Yeah. Yeah. I just happened to be here because the last person did not sack me. Yeah. There is an element of that. But no, Mo- Moorcock basically has been a writer his entire... Well, actually, no, he's been a writer and a musician. And as yeah, a teenager, he, he played mates, blues in it's France. Like, it's like me. I've got loads of mates who I'm sure just take straight to the fucking screen. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, to be fair, Natasha, your life is pretty tedious, but the shit you tell us, we could not replicate in real life. Yeah. Nor could we find the evidence of it in real life. Therefore, we'll call it fantasy. 
that somewhere in the future. Mm. Because back when he was getting published, the guys that we know didn't know that many people. So he would have been published, whereas there must have been a million people with those stories going, I'm on this project. Well, I don't know. I think the beauty of those days, you know, and this this goes back to all the books my granddad used to give me. And and one of the reasons why... Is your granddad still alive? No, no, no. He's been dead 20 years. Because me and your granddad could have had a right good drinking session. Yeah. Um, the, the really... He, he gave me... I mean, at one point I was just given two bin liners full of books because they'd all piled up. I used to get given them drip-fed, and then one day my uncle had got a load for, who'd been getting drip-fed and by my granddad as well. He just gave me two bin liners full of books. And the wonderful thing about the 60s and 70s, and I think there was the thing about publishing in general, was it was so easy, so much easier to get published in those days because books sold, even if you were crap, books sold. I, I mean, if people like John happened. Norman wrote the Copyright Garbox. Copyright happened because Nina Simone and Al Green and uh, what's his name? through a couple of records there Ray Charles mm. so all the, the great artists who came up with great things they didn't have the legal rights to own their shit mm. and I think that must have happened across genres do you know what I mean like there was a lot of good things that were coming to the service in those days but it's like well who owns who owns the ability to spread this far and wide it's a bit yeah. like the golden age of cinema you've got like four great powerhouses and now they're owned by two you rather on Disney side or Warner side and you're going to pretend that they've got different investments but you know what I mean? It's that kind of... Well, pretend there's an alternative. Well, pretend there's an alternative, although secretly all of them follow the same fucking narrative. How yeah. are we going to pretend there's an alternative? I, th- I think the, the alternatives were all there, but the alternatives weren't necessarily in terms of, of narrative or what happened, but it was all about tone and content. Because people like... You know, I mentioned Gore, the, the Gore novels by John Norman. They sold in massive numbers, but they were awful, misogynistic... You know, really, really poor. And then you had, um, I think I've mentioned this before as well, probably a couple of times on the podcast, there was a, a, a series by someone called E.C. Tubb called The Doomerest Saga that ended up going up into the 30s. But they sold, and they were continually in print in the 60s and 70s. What, when, what really kind of agrees me to a degree about growing up and, and moving on and, and prioritising your life is I gave probably two-thirds of those books to charity shops when I moved from Hull to Bradford. And I guarantee... The even la- the... the just, just to pause, pause it for a moment, even the retriever grumbled at that. Yeah. See, can you hear that? Yeah. That. Uh, the largest proportion of those books see, will no longer be in print. Yeah. Well, feels your pain. So much of that stuff was in print because that stuff sold and people who were writing pretty low-quality sci-fi and fantasy could get published. Oh, God, everyone got published in the 70s. Yeah. That's how it feels. I don't think that's the real world, because obviously, you know, our understanding of the creative process in this world of media is very contained. It's yeah. like, is this going to sell? Is this going to make big books? Can we can we string 20 episodes, not 20 episodes, 20 seasons of this shit to you? Yeah. And how can we recycle it to you? So if, if you can buy the, the merchandise, I think we've discussed this before, you're in. Mm. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> Loz and I, we've decided we're going to cover another one of my granddad's hand-me-downs. It was a series of six books by a guy called Mike Sirota, who, who wrote the stories of Danus. And we're going to cover a book called Danus and the Dark, the Dark Straits of Regolathium. 
Right. <laughs> Signed up and for it's it. it's okay. fucking garbage. I made 20 books of I reason of but this. It's, but it's kind of funny. And, yeah, tons and tons and tons of those books. But actually some good ones as well. I I'll, I'll went to charity shops. Out of 20 books, come on. They won't be in print anymore. It's a real shame. So, but there you go. Amazon, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, we'd be very grateful for your money. Mm. It's, it's, it's amazing how many British authors are in print in Britain. Or that actually how many British authors do you ever hear about? If you hadn't directed me to tra- Dragonlance with two female authors... Uh, um, well, Tracy Hickman is a man. Is a man. Because in America, Tracy can be a man's name as well. Of course. Yeah. However, I haven't re- yet read... And I'm only a third of the way through the Chronicles. I haven't yet read the description of her breast heaving mm. with the excitement and her nipples over almost overflowing beyond her corset that she finds so comfortable to wear during fights. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to read those Dragonlands books again. And then we'll discuss point. it. Yeah. Now, you, now you fucking nag me about it, mate. Yeah. 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 Now, now my failing memory has resulted in me asking the question 17 times. Seven You've times. actually gone out Only and a mere, them. a mere seven times. Yeah. Have you read them? Have you read them? Have you read them? Is it you who's read them? Yeah. I haven't fucking read them. The, there is somebody I know who's read them. There's that's why I kept saying, is them. it you? Is it it you? will be me. It will be yeah. me. Just give them another week. Yeah. So I'm going to have to dig them off the shelf because I haven't read them since I was at senior school. Maybe, maybe even junior school, come to think of it. I'll have well, to look at the well, No, they work well because it's not over-sexualised like the modern fantasy where everyone's going to have big tits and everyone's yeah. going to shag everyone but they're going to have to shag everyone someone else and, oh, they're the conundrum because they're human and they're not... Carry on. Hmm. Well, you know what? There we shall wrap it up because the next, the <laughs> next chapter is the Battle of the Camargue and I think uh, we, need to, the bell. we need to leave that for the beginning of the next episode. Dickhead. So, dickhead, just <laughs> psst, dickhead. So, Classic fantasy, dickhead. But I shall raise my glass of Angostura rum and say once again, thanks for being a guest on Breakfast with the Ruins podcast. To the audience, I apologise, but you know we are again several glasses of rum inside for me. Um, and the last one, because we introduced it, going, oh, we're drinking some nice Angostura rum. We didn't mention the beer we had for breakfast. Yeah. We I, I don't that think anybody part. will notice. No one noticed. No, no one cares. However, there was there was an essence because I'm not on Facebook or tw- I am on Facebook, but I'm not on Twitter. So Andrew shared me some of these comments. I'm like, did they not realise we were pissed? And this is the conversation we have every time we're pissed. This is not a different conversation because we think we are academically reviewing these concept in a, <laughs> I don't think anybody in a sensible sort of you know like this is a balanced perspective of what these people think about no 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 this is this is Andrew and I when we get together and we have a certain amount of drink with a certain amount of dogs and a certain amount of fantasy books this turns into every conversation this yeah. isn't a special conversation we've got oh we'll record this one because Amazon might buy it Amazon buy it Amazon buy it <laughs> but you know this is just like a why don't we talk about things? And you're like, why don't we do a podcast? And I'm like, you do what the fuck you want, Andrew. Me and you will listen to it. Happy with that. hundred people listen to it. I'm like, what the fuck? And then it's like, oh, yeah, but most of them aren't in England. I'm like, that makes me feel a little bit better. If they're not in England, then I'm not going to walk in somebody in a job interview who goes, aren't you the person who talked about taking mushrooms in a discussion about Moorcock? And I'm thinking... Yeah, no, no, that's not. That must be a completely different, Natasha. 
Yeah, he's nodding. He's yeah. nodding. We're all comfortable. Yeah. We're all happy. So thank you to me. Thank you to you. <laughs> Good night from me. Good night from him. And you have no idea what the next book's bringing to you. Although it's 84 pages. If you can be bothered to listen to me and Andrew. Are you still recording? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you can be bothered to listen to us and my dog's tail's wagging and the woman's being drunk and the merry new decade to you we wish you and the fact that we are still living in the Grand Breton timeline that I keep warning about but Andrew's like, yeah, it's all right. Um, you should meet us in our day jobs because you'd laugh your fucking ass off. Yeah, not in my day job moment. <laughs> not anymore <laughs> not anymore only because he's taking it seriously world don't yeah. take him hit him seriously just because you take it seriously Andrew doesn't mean we take it seriously yeah. and um, you know good luck to you book three book three is coming book three more exciting than you can imagine this eyeless soulless bastard who's worked for the bad guys who want just steal us this daughter will be quits. I think we're someone about here, aren't we? So, still there's a daughter. We'll call it quits. We'll be happy. Natasha can't put her tongue to the top of her mouth, so any words that take more enunciation is out. But book three, we might change your life. He might, his eyes might spark. It might be at a point where you think, what? You might think, but everything else was all right, but this is the problem. But this is a problem. Fucking do it. Say night, night, Natasha. Night, night, Natasha. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us through this. Probably the most challenging show to date for a variety of reasons but mostly due to booze and my amateurish technical abilities as a podcaster. Tash did request a redo on this show, but I thought, no, this is us, what's and all. We have learned <laughs> perhaps to dial back a little bit for part three. Uh, we might cut down on the pre-run beers, but we'll see. Things will take their natural course. Thanks as ever to show patrons Norman, Fred, Malpertius, Matt, David and Tom. Big appreciation. And thanks to the Twitter community for their support and feedback. And speaking of the Twitterati, congrats to Menion, a.k.a. Rob, one of the earliest proponents of this show, who you may recall from our Mococks birthday episode. He's launched his own podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. Great work, Rob. Really enjoyable listen. I hope to listen to many more. But most of all, thanks to my old mucker Neil once again for his excellent support in kicking the mess that there was the recording of this show into some sort of shape. And thanks to both Neil and Lars for the use of the intro and outro music in the show from their old band Giant Kind. I'll be back soon with part three of Elric of Melnibonir with Lars and phase two of the final programme with Hussein, who, despite his general stance on sci-fi and fantasy, has agreed to continue down the Mococ rabbit hole. And of course, once we have Elric of Melnibonir in the can, I'll need another read for Lars. He wants to start off down the Corum trail, but I might throw that up into a vote just to annoy him, but more details on that soon via the blog the Patreon page, and Twitter. So, once again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the Moonbeam Rods. <laughs>